Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Hey BIOS listeners, we have a quick update on this exciting story. This episode was first recorded in November 2021. One month later, SwiftScale announced their acquisition by National Resilience. National Resilience is a first-of-its-kind biopharmaceutical manufacturing company established by Bob Nelson at Arch Ventures and Drew Oding at 8VC and led by Raul Singby a serial biopharma leader. SwiftScale's cell-free protein synthesis technology eliminates the constraints of using living cells in the drug manufacturing process, resulting in faster production times, less variability across batches, and greater scalability with hard-to-produce proteins. Upon further development, Resilience intends to integrate SwiftScale's technology into its future manufacturing platforms. We hope you are as excited as we are in seeing the next chapter ahead for cell-free protein synthesis systems. We're thrilled to welcome Mike Jewett, Professor of Chemical and Biological Engineering at Northwestern and serial entrepreneur of the show today. Thank you once again for joining us. To help co-host this special episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Sasha Aramina, and special guest host, David Mace, co-founder and CEO at SwiftScale Biologics. David, can you give our listeners a bit of background on yourself and SwiftScale? Yeah, we'd love to. Thanks, Jess. So background on myself. So I I uh, did my studies at Caltech and then later uh, in my career worked uh, more recently as an entrepreneur in residence at uh, 8VC and then started uh, SwiftScale Biologics with Mike, Matt DeLiza at Cornell and uh, Weston Keitlinger, who was uh, one of Mike's students. And uh, since then, we've been really focused on scaling up our technology to be able to make a large impact. Um, on the ability of cell-free protein synthesis to advance uh, a lot of therapeutics uh, to patients. And so really excited to tell you more. Fantastic. Thanks once again for joining us. Uh, Mike, if we can kick things off here, can you share a brief intro with our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks so much for having us today, uh, Chaz. Very grateful to be here. And, you know, my name is Michael Jew, and I'm a professor in chemical and biological engineering at Northwestern University, where I also direct the Center for Synthetic Biology. I got my PhD working at Stanford University with Jim Schwartz, then went to the Center for Microbial Biotechnology in Denmark, working with Jens Nielsen, followed by a short postdoctoral stint with George Church at the Harvard Medical School, and have been at Northwestern for a little over 10 years now, really focusing on developing a variety of innovations, mainly centered in using cell-free systems for manufacturing therapeutics, developing on-demand portable diagnostics, and developing new innovative strategies for teaching education. Would love to connect some of the dots that you just mentioned uh, in your intro here. So throughout your career, what's been your, your North Star, if you will, the common thread tying all of your work together? 
you know, from my perspective, one of the things that's so exciting about biology, about cell-free systems, about synthetic biology, is this concept that enables us to think about partnering with biology to build it, right? And I think many of us can reflect upon things that we may have built in our lives. You know, maybe it was a toothpick bridge when we were learning to understand the basics of physics or a robot or treehouse or just Legos. And I think many of us have built, you know, constructed objects, constructed elements, machines from kind of basic parts. And I think, you know, when we think about biology, one of the things that's really been kind of a North Star for me has been this idea that we can build with biology, right? You know, biology is interesting and so powerful because it's such a universal technology. You know, biology can do things that no other man-made technology or chemistry can do. Maybe even put differently, right? Bi biology defines and impacts, you know, everything we care about from nature to newborns. And I think that as we imagine the power of biological systems, what emerges is this need for new tools to allow us to better partner with biology so that we can build and make what is needed, where and when it is needed on a sustainable and renewable basis. And so if I tend to think about what's my North Star, I think that's it, right? It's this ability to how can we partner better with biological systems to kind of allow everybody to have their own, you know, some fictitious setting, you know, personal biosynthesizer, or maybe not fictitious, who knows? And I think to me, that's where that's where the field of synthetic biology has had such a transformative impact because, you know, as we've gotten closer to being a part of this synthetic biology community, synthetic biology advances our ability to build with biology, to make molecules, to make molecules biology has seen before, but beyond that, to actually to make molecules that biology never knew about, to carry out functions that biology didn't know it needed. And so in many respects, I think that one of the very powerful elements of an emergence of kind of the field of synthetic biology and our understanding of how to better partner with biological systems is this, this opening of an opportunity to make products for societal need. That extends then to, I think, our interests in using cell-free systems. Because when we're uninhibited by some of these evolutionary constraints, it opens opportunities to make new molecules, maybe to make molecules or proteins or vaccines in ways that people haven't thought about before, haven't necessarily needed, or biology certainly didn't need. But again, it, it allows us to make possible the creation of new products, diagnostics, and and education tools that I think can can really transform the future and 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 where we might head with it. Wonderful to hear the the background for your group and thanks for sharing. One fun common question we love to ask our guests as we kick off uh, BIOS podcast here comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Mike, can you share with us what does inventing the future mean to you? Yeah, that's a great question, Chaz. I think when I think about inventing the future, it, it makes one really stop and pause and consider what would we wish for, right? So I guess one starts to think about what would we wish society looked like? What would we wish for in the context of enabling kind of human civilizations to flourish? And how I connect that to some of our research 
is how can we invent technologies to enable broader access to biotechnologies? You know, current access to synthetic biology technologies across the planet is less equal than I'd like it to be. And I think that many would like it to be largely due to challenges around infrastructure and education. And so as we imagine how to invent the future, I think a lot about how do you invent new technologies that enable us to address some of these key challenges, but in particular for enabling what we might wish for in the context of future civilization, society, and flourishing. Mike, it'd be good to have a deeper dive into the work of your lab, given given the broad focus of, of your projects. Just to quote what it says on your website, your group is reconceptualizing the way com- complex biological systems are engineered for compelling applications in medicine, materials, and energy. So that's a really broad spectrum of uh, projects. You work on engineering ribosomes, making uh, shelf-stable cell-free vaccines, novel polymers. Could you unpack how all of these projects are connected for for us, please? Indeed, we do have a broad spectrum of application-based interests. I think one of the key features that connects the group together is really the use of cell-free systems. You know, when you think about a lot of kind of more classic biomanufacturing-based approaches, we oftentimes use cells to make products, to make, let's say, sustainable chemicals, to make therapeutics or others. And one of the challenges of these processes is that we're trying to coax these organisms into making products at tighter rates and yields that are societally relevant. And when we do that, we oftentimes run into challenges. And in fact, those challenges arise and emerge in part because cells have evolutionary and adaptation objectives that oftentimes are in direct conflict with the engineer's objectives. And so our approach to addressing that challenge has been to kind of break the tug of war, cut the tug of war, so to speak, between what cells may wish to do and what engineers may wish to do using cell-free systems. And in many respects, the the key advantages of this approach is that you you get to bypass some of the evolutionary constraints that may otherwise challenge our ability to manufacture and make products for society. So, you know, what's a cell-free system, one might ask. Um, When we think about cell-free systems, what we do in our group is we take living organisms, we rip off their cell walls and collect the insides. And then we use the insides as a catalytic factory to enable the molecular manufacture of certain products. You can kind of think of this like taking a car, lifting the hood up and pulling the engine out and then repurposing the engine. What we're doing is we're repurposing the molecular machinery of the cell. In the absence of cell walls and in the absence of evolutionary objectives to carry out whatever the user may wish to do. So again, an E. coli cell doesn't necessarily want to produce a sustainable carpet and may fight us along the way, but in the context of these cell-free systems, we get to bypass those constraints. And and we use those systems for a variety of reasons in our group. And when you think about, you know, broadly the spectrum of projects we work on, we tend to work in two major areas. One is in accelerating design and the other is in manufacturing themselves or manufacturing as its own focal point, essentially using a cell-free system as a factory. And so all of the projects that we work on in the lab really center into 
these broad two divisions where when we're trying to accelerate design, it could be everything from genetic circuits to metabolic pathways for sustainability. And when we're focusing on manufacturing, it could be everything from manufacturing, let's say, uh, protein therapeutics to vaccines. One of the really exciting elements of cell-free systems is that they can be freeze-dried. They can be stored, distributed, and activated by simply adding water through this process. And that really opens up a, a whole new world for manufacturing. Thanks, Mike. And just to add on to that, I know that you and I talk a lot about uh, all of the really interesting work that's happened over, over many years in cell-free uh, protein synthesis. And uh, all of the, uh, would just be interested to understand a little bit more about the history of the field and where we are now. Thanks, David. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that the cell-free protein synthesis field has been around for for decades, even you know more than a century. You know, if you look back to the late 1990s um, and early 2000s, there were a whole lot of challenges around cell-free protein synthesis system. They were very short reaction durations, so the reactions might last five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes if you're lucky. The systems were very expensive. You used high-energy phosphate compounds as a secondary energy substrate to replenish ATP, which is required for protein synthesis. So you can imagine molecules like phosphatidylpyruvate, which cost hundreds of dollars per gram rather than inexpensive substrates like glucose, which are used to grow cells. The system really hadn't been demonstrated to produce complex protein therapeutics or proteins with disulfide bonds, for example. And so really there were many challenges surrounding the use of cell-free protein synthesis systems. And kind of one by one, really by focusing on the substrates rather than the products, focusing on the stability of the RNA and DNA template, focusing on the stability of the amino acid substrates, the energy supply systems, et cetera, the field was able to continue to increase protein synthesis yields, extend batch reaction durations, and reduce costs, all the while being able to make more and more complex proteins. And so really there's this transformative period in the development of the cell-free protein synthesis field. Costs are being reduced, protein synthesis yields are increasing, and the complexity of the type of proteins that you're making is increasing. And you know, fast forward 10 years, we're here. I think that those early innovations really led to the formation of, for example, Suture Biopharma, which was a company that spun out of work in Jim Schwartz's lab at Stanford University, really focused on making protein therapeutics, now looking in one example at antibody drug conjugates or others. And it really began to, to make possible this idea that you could use cell-free systems to manufacture products. Some other key innovations that occurred in the field just over the course of the last decade is now this additional transformation to not only being able to synthesize proteins at high yields, at lower costs, address the scale-up issues. So learning how to, for example, carry out cell-free protein synthesis reactions at not just the nanoliter, microliter scales, but really the 10, 100, and perhaps even 1,000 liter scales. But in addition, the determination and realization that these cell-free systems could be freeze-dried and maintain activity through some of the early work of Brad Bundy, Jim Collins, some of the work coming out of our own group and others, really developing strategies to 
kind of freeze dry these cell-free systems and demonstrate that they could be used as a portable manufacturing platform for on-demand synthesis has really, I think, accelerated a lot of interest in using cell-free systems, especially for manufacturing medicines, therapeutics, chemicals, or other molecules when and where we need them. So I know we talked a lot about how much the field has accelerated within the last few years, especially within the last year even. We'd just be curious to talk through a little bit more about why that's the case, the field's accelerated so much in, in recent history, and also what tools are still to be developed, like the, the next things that will really push cell-free forward. I would be curious to get your perspective. I think that there's a few things that have certainly accelerated the use of of cell-free systems in the last few years. And I really think that there's been an absolute explosion of interest. First, you know, as I mentioned, just there's a lot of technological innovations that have led to greater than gram per liter protein yields of model proteins, extended reaction durations, robust and reproducible protocols that other research labs could pick up, essentially democratizing the field and allowing others to enter it. This ability to allow for systems to be freeze-dried, as well as the extension of cell-free systems to genetic networks. So there's been a lot of innovations around using cell-free systems for sensing molecules, could be sensing nucleic acids, could be sensing small molecule chemicals, and these types of approaches have really been transformative in the sense that it's opened up new application spaces for cell-free systems. And so when I think about why and how and in what ways the field has accelerated, one are certainly just the technical renaissance that has occurred. The second, I think, is the extension and demonstration of genetic circuits being used has been critical. And the third has just been the recognition that time to product, accelerating time to market perhaps, is really critical. Certainly I think in the wake of COVID-19 and all that we have faced as a planet over the course of the you know, last 18 months plus, as we look at the worldwide pandemic, it has become more and more evident that having the ability to rapidly iterate through development of protein therapeutics is critical. And I think cell-free systems offer a very powerful approach where you don't have to go through cells. And because of that, the process, because of that, the process can be accelerated. And I think that this kind of accelerating time to market, accelerating time to design is something that has really expanded the utilization of the field. Let me give you an example. So just in some recent work of our own, we've been collaborating with David Beesler, David Baker, both at the University of Washington, as well as Michael Diamond at the University of Washington, St. Louis. David's been a great collaborator and friend and amazing innovator to work with. And what's been really fun is as we've tried to think about how do you develop therapeutics faster, what we found was this interesting area to innovate at the intersection of protein design, cell-free systems, and high-throughput experimentation. And so I think as we're all aware, when you look at antibodies, they have been a very effective therapy in the fight against COVID-19, but are bottlenecked by challenges surrounding kind of the evolution of the spike protein and how variations in spike protein amino acid sequences may change 
the way in which those antibodies efficiently bind to the virus to prevent interaction with the ACE2 receptor. And so what we were able to work on with David is developing a series of multivalent mini binders, de novo designed proteins that David's group designed and tune their binding affinities to be quite tight for different escape variants, spike proteins of the virus. And this was really enabled because we could go from rapid DNA synthesis into rapid self-re-expression, into rapid evaluation of binding and turn that cycle pretty quickly. And to a point where we can kind of move down into the, you know, days to weeks cycle time now for being able to find very efficient binders to the next potential variants of concern that could emerge. And interesting to note that the current best potential therapeutics that we've identified actually are able to neutralize all of the variants of concern so far that have uh, emerged with respect to SARS-CoV-2 and its, its variants. So I think from the cell-free perspective, some of the powerful elements, if I just kind of go back, are really this technical renaissance, the kind of ability to make more and more complex proteins, the ability to freeze dry, produce different types of genetic networks. But then in addition, this accelerating time to market has really become appealing for not only academic, but also I think industrial application spaces. Now, David, to your second question, what do we still need? You know, what tools are we still currently lacking? I think there are some gaps that still certainly exist in the cell-free space. When we look at glycosylation, for example, of protein-based therapeutics, this is a space that we are continuing to work on in my own research laboratory in very tight collaboration with Matt DeLisa, who's at Cornell University. There are also areas of trying to continue to make these systems robust and work at large scale. While some companies have scaled them, this is certainly not commonplace. It's not common for people to be running 100 milliliter cell-free reactions uh, in their research laboratories. And I think that this would open up some very exciting new opportunities. Uh, last point that I would just raise is continuing to reduce costs. Is there a way to imagine process-based innovations or others that could reduce costs of the system to make them even more accessible? And so those would be perhaps three areas of of development that I would be very excited to watch over the next few years as the field continues to, to rapidly mature. I think the field has emerged already. I think that it is now maturing rapidly into this exponential phase growth, and I'm really excited to see what comes next. And my next question here, I'd be curious to learn a little bit more about the industrial applications of self-reproducing synthesis, especially in biofuels. Uh, so we'd love to hear more about your uh, collaboration with Lanza Tech. Yeah, thanks, David. And, and this is actually in a totally different spectrum of research than what I was just mentioning. I think a lot of the emphasis in cell-free systems has really been centered around utilization of cell-free systems for protein therapeutic manufacturing. Diagnostics is an area we can come back to later in the podcast if we wish. But in terms of where the field may also have an impact, we can talk about this accelerating time to market. So one of the interesting advantages of cell-free systems is that they can indeed kind of accelerate our understanding of design space. And so we've actually been collaborating with Lanza Tech in this area. I think we all know that 
you know, rapid population growth, the rise in global living standards, climate change concerns have really intensified the need for sustainable, low-cost productions of biofuels and bioproducts. You know, many everyday products that we have come from chemicals that are made from petroleum. And, you know, rather than petroleum, we, like many others, I think, are curious to know, can we use biology to capture carbon from the atmosphere and carbon oxides, carbon monoxide, carbon monoxide, et cetera, to make these types of chemicals? And if we could do that, could this help allow us to get to sustainable, low-cost manufacturer products? And so we've actually been working with Lanzatech to help the design process for engineering an organism that can grow on gas, these are clostridia, that can grow on industrial waste gases or biomass and gas to make carbon negative chemicals. And really one of the key challenges is that clostridia itself is a slow growing organism. And therefore the design build test cycles for studying biosynthetic pathways and their optimization can be on the order of months, uh, six months, nine months, 12 months or longer, depending on the complexity of the pathway. And so we've actually found a tremendous amount of success working with Lanzatech to accelerate design and selection of biosynthetic pathways. So we've been using cell-free systems to accelerate the selection and optimization of biosynthetic pathways. One of the kind of most prominent examples now comes from a publication that came out last year in Nature Chemical Biology where what we did is we explored multiple variations of a pathway, hundreds of pathway combinations to increase production of a specific sustainable chemical. We've actually gone on beyond that with them to now not just accelerate selection optimization of biosynthetic pathways. So basically how do I find the best sets of enzymes to allow for a specific molecular transformation, but to actually guide strain engineering pipelines to accelerate time to market and in particular, facilitate carbon negative manufacturing. So we have a manuscript that'll be coming out soon in this space. But again, we've seen a lot of exciting opportunities in using cell-free systems to study the biochemistry of molecular pathways for metabolic engineering. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community. Sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Would want to focus a bit on your work uh, on commercializing some of the, the research from the lab through your company, uh, Swift Scale Biologics, which you co-founded recently together with David. So Swift Scale works on expanding the horizons both in speed and throughput in producing protein therapeutics as well as delivering classes of proteins that wouldn't be feasible with the current cell-based systems. So could you um, share uh, your journey with Swift Scale, please, from ideation to the actual spin-out? I've always been captivated by the promise of using cell-free systems to accelerate time to market of medicines. And certainly that's come out in some of the earlier discussion points that I've raised. I, I, I think with Swift Scale, 
it all actually kind of starts with some collaborative research that I've been carrying out with Matt Elisa's group at Cornell University. You know, I had developed a lot of background cell-free protein synthesis know-how and manufacturing capabilities as both a grad student and, and some in a postdoc. And, you know, Matt Delisa, who's at Cornell, has developed a tremendous amount of know-how around glycoengineering. And what we thought would be potentially powerful for the field would be to come together and merge those interests and to blend the glycoengineering interests and glycoprotein synthesis efforts that Matt was innovating on in living E. coli, but to put them into cell-free systems. And really that ideation, kind of beginning those pieces to pull those pieces together, put us on a course where we could really imagine using cell-free systems to manufacture protein biologics, and in particular also glycoprotein biologics in a rapid and fast way. How that turned into Swift scale is really David. Had a few interactions with David, came to reach out to us to learn more about our technology. And really what that led to is a tremendous amount of excitement, confidence, and energy around turning this into a spin-out. And maybe I'll let David pick, pick it up from here and, and how that really got to the spin-out itself. Yeah, David, would be great to know how you joined SwiftScale, previously being an entrepreneur in residence at 8VC. Could you share your story of choosing to problem to work on and what led you to SwiftScale? Thanks, Asha. Yeah, so in the journey to starting SwiftScale, I think one of the, the really fun parts of being an entrepreneur in residence at 8VC was that I got the freedom to look pretty broadly across the field of, of new technologies for protein synthesis specifically. And I was pretty focused from the start on what is the next technology that will push protein synthesis forward, both for complex molecules and for speed of advancing therapeutics. I had previously been helping some colleagues with advancing oncology therapeutic platform and saw the major limitations on the manufacturing side for the normal timelines and costs of advancing new drugs. So I knew that there was the opportunity to make a really big impact on the scope of protein therapeutics that could advance to patients, both in terms of types of molecules in addition to just the sheer number of molecules and speed of those molecules advancement. And in looking through all the different technologies that were, that were being created to work on protein therapeutic manufacturing, I was absolutely the most excited by cell-free protein synthesis and became very convinced that this technology had the biggest potential to have a large impact on the field. And so I reached out to Mike and uh, Matt Deliza at, at Cornell to get to understand technology better. And really in, in partnering with them was excited to work with extraordinarily intelligent people who were very mission driven towards the same goal that we wanted to accomplish of enabling a large change in the breadth of therapeutics that could be advanced. And so I think we aligned really well on that and were able to pull in two of Mike's students to the company as well, who were very instrumental, both Weston Keilinger and Danielle Yes. And uh, so then started the company and uh, been off and running ever since then. Yeah. What an interesting story of uh, venture creation. You kind of had the graduate students join, but they weren't necessarily the only co-founders. So earlier this year, you stated that your company's mission is to scale up 100 drugs per year. 
for your partners. Would be interested to know where do you currently stand in achieving this goal and what are the next milestones and challenges ahead of you at SwiftScale? Yeah, so our, our mission is really to enable a large shift in how biomanufacturing is done for protein therapeutics. The goal is to enable a large variety of therapeutics that are advanced from academic labs, from smaller biotech companies, all the way up to larger pharmaceutical partners so that they can advance molecules they couldn't otherwise advance. They can advance molecules in speeds that would otherwise be infeasible. And I think that's our big focus. And I think we've made a lot of really good progress on that path, but certainly that a very large mission. And so we will continue pushing forward and uh, actively hiring for a lot of folks as well to help us along on our mission and have a lot of interesting work ahead of us to, to get to that point. But we're, we're excited to, to carry it forward in the coming years. There is another big theme we would like to touch upon, given, Mike, your involvement with NWU Sin Center. So in addition to running your lab and spinning out companies, you had the Center for Synthetic Biology at Northwestern. Could you give us a brief overview of the center's activities and its entrepreneurial culture? I, I indeed, as you mentioned, I also direct the Center for Synthetic Biology at Northwestern University, which is really a vibrant ecosystem in synthetic biology, crossing everything from the development of cell-free systems, as we mentioned here, to novel protein design to microbial communities to next generation cancer therapies. So it's really exciting. You know, the, the Center for Synthetic Biology at Northwestern was launched formally in 2016 with six members. We've actually since grown to 16 faculty members that cross the College of Arts and Sciences, the College of Engineering, the School of Medicine. And what's really exciting about that is the center has really been able to kind of raise the university's profile in the field and led to one of the largest concentration of synthetic biology researchers in the country. We have, you know, more than 200 active trainees, 33 outreach programs, you know, I think more than 40 joint publications already in just, just our short time. And as we think about innovation culture, we've actually just in the last two years launched more than seven startup companies from, from just that group of faculty. And so you know as I, I think of you know the timing, the place and et cetera of, of the university, I think it really brings together synthetic biology excellence in design-driven medicine, sustainability, and equitable technologies. So when you think about the main research areas of the center, it really brings together, I think, the best in design-driven medicine, sustainability, and equitable technology. So, you know, it, and one example, I think that the Center for Synthetic Biology at Northwestern offers kind of world-leading innovation in cell-free synthetic biology. This is in the space of diagnostics, biomanufacturing of therapeutics, like we mentioned, but also education, all leveraging this kind of just add water biotechnology that's enabled by freeze-dried cell-free systems. Separate, you know, for example, you know, one of my colleagues, Julius Lux, and myself have been working on a variety of diagnostic technology, which are, they're really centered around developing a pregnancy test for water so that you would be able to know if your water is safe to drink. But there's really so much more around these kind of pillars of excellence of design-driven medicine, sustainability, and, and, and equitable technologies that I think are leading to new innovation. The way that's happened formally, at least as we think about commercial enterprises, is the creation of more than seven startups in the last few years. So would love to cap things off with a few rapid fire questions before we come to a close, folks. Mike, as we've talked uh, so much about Cell Free today, would love to open it up and, and ask kind of 
What do you see as the grand challenges of life sciences as we look for maybe perhaps over the next 30 years? That's a super great question, Chaz. I, I think, I think that, you know, kind of put maybe simply, you know, how do we as synthetic biologists, life scientists, how do we accelerate our ability to partner with living systems, to partner with biology, with all of life's diversity in order to address kind of the key societal challenges of our time? So, you know, I, as I mentioned kind of early on, we have climate change. We have how do we enable access to medicine? Certainly, um, COVID-19 has put in perspective an entirely new realm of how do we address worldwide pandemics? How do we know if our water is safe to drink? I think that these are some of the real key challenges that synthetic biologists are primed to be able to address, right? I think as we look forward to the future. And so from my perspective, this is where I think a lot of people's efforts will be focused. And now that we look forward 30 years, this brings us to, to biotech in 2050. Would love if you both could tag in uh, and describe as we look in this crystal ball, where will we be in 2050 in biotech? David, do you want to start? My vision for biotech in 2050, if we're successful, the hope is that self-free will be broadly used across the entire industry as the norm for a manufacturing of protein therapeutics. That's the goal. I think when I look to the future of biotechnology, I'm really excited about a variety of topic areas. I'm really hopeful and wish for new approaches to carbon negative manufacturing. How do we enable, for example, enhanced and resilient food and nutrition? Can we use synthetic biology for ecosystem recovery and restoration and enable manufacturing of vitamins and medicines when and where people need them? Some of the grand challenges around our current approach to manufacturing medicines is that manufacturing facilities are very expensive. And once we manufacture products, we have to learn to distribute them to their point of use, right? It's this whole challenge around manufacturing and cold chain. Certainly we've heard about this in the context of COVID-19. And so what I wish for is, and what I imagine are new technologies, Cell-free systems potentially being one of the main drivers in allowing us to make medicines when and where they're needed. But it's not just medicines. I think it's cell-free systems. I also am very excited about their use for diagnostics, not only for being able to tell us if we've been exposed to virus, but also if our water's safe to drink. You know, one of the major challenges right now we face as a planet is more than 2 billion people lack access to clean water. That number is increasing. And in fact, more than half the planet may be in a resource limited area for water just in 10 to 20 years from now. And so can we imagine having distributed diagnostics, kind of labs that can be distributed, very low cost, that are accessible, equitable, that enable people to understand if their water is safe to drink? So these and many other types of technologies, I think, will emerge certainly by 2030, but hopefully sooner. Mike, I, I guess maybe one closing thought I'd, I'd love to hear from y'all we haven't perhaps maybe touched on is the potential for self-free to be a true change agent for production scale of novel synthetic amino acid therapeutics. Can you maybe talk about this class that's emerging and the impact on patients ahead? Yeah, thanks, Chaz. You know, I think there is a lot of emerging interest in manufacturing proteins with multiple non-canonical amino acids, wondering, for example, could they be used in everything from antibody drug conjugates to allow for novel therapeutic modalities, 
to could you actually modify the types of polymers that the ribosome synthesizes to create best-in-class therapeutics, peptidomimetics, and others in this space. I think that cell-free systems are really well-poised to have an impact there. You know, our research group has done quite a bit of work around using and, and trying to ask what are the constraints of an RNA-based active site in the ribosome? So the ribosome, as we know, produces many types of alpha-based amino acid polymers, we call them proteins. And there really has been this long-standing curiosity around, could we use the ribosome to make more kind of what we call peptidomimetic drugs? Peptides that are you know, not necessarily made of all alpha amino acids, but made of beta amino acids or beta cyclic amino acids or gamma cyclic amino acids that would give new types of peptide turn chemistries and perhaps allow both stability, but also novel structures of the peptides and proteins that could be synthesized to enable new classes of therapeutics. And so when I look to the future, I do see this as an emerging opportunity in the field of cell-free systems and beyond, because you could imagine using engineered ribosomes, for example, to efficiently polymerize non-alpha-based peptides, polymers, protein therapeutics that could be new classes of, of therapies, long-lived perhaps, ones that have particular pharmacodynamics or pharmacokinetics that one is interested in. But I do this, see this as a space to come, especially because cell-free systems get to bypass a lot of the constraints around cell viability that might otherwise challenge using many non-canonical chemistries in a single polymer product. That said, there's still work to be done. So I think although that, you know, I think it's an exciting area in the future, I still think it's not just one year out. David, do you want to add any closing thoughts here? Yeah, I guess just for, for closing thoughts, um, yeah, thanks for having us both on today, Chaz. And Mike, is really great to uh, uh, hear uh, all about Cell Free from you and touch on a lot of topics that we, that we talk about quite a bit. And uh, my only shameless plug is that we're hiring quite a bit and will continue to be in the coming years. And uh, so if people are interested in playing a role in dramatically advancing the number of protein therapeutics that can be advanced to, to patients for critical indications, definitely interested in, in chatting with everyone and collaborating. So thanks. Thanks, David. And personal shout out on Swiss scale. If you're curious to learn more about the journey of, of David and Mike's startup here, check out Bios Medium, uh, where you can find a spotlight we published on David and his journey with Cisco Biologics. Mike, we've touched on some fantastic work you've done at Northwestern. How can our listeners now dive into more of your work? Any websites or Twitter accounts or stuff you can point us to? Yeah, thanks, Chaz. In terms of you know websites or Twitter accounts, certainly if you if you just type my name and uh, into Google and look for Twitter or our website at Northwestern, I'm sure you'll find it. You know, and I think more broadly, I would just also echo some of David's sentiments. Very very grateful for the opportunity to to chat with the team here today to kind of have this conversation. I think that it it truly is an exciting time in the development of self systems. I think that what we've started to see is there are many commercial opportunities that are emerging out of the use of cell-free systems. Certainly, as David and I have been developing and, and, and maturing SwiftScale and looking at protein-based therapeutics, you know, but there are others as well. And so in the class of, you know, diagnostics, even some interested in, in protein-based materials. And so it's going to be very exciting to watch the field unfold. 
And in terms of shameless plugs, I would just say, come join the journey. There's a lot of laboratories across the country, across the globe that are working to accelerate, develop and expand the field of cell-free synthetic biology, cell-free protein synthesis systems. I think there are a lot of exciting opportunities in this space and in particular to address these key societal challenges that we need to focus on, ultimately, hopefully allowing our society to flourish more, to address these key issues in sustainability, to address the key issues in making medicines when and where they're needed, as well as allowing others to kind of sense the world around them, know everything from if their water is clean to drink to if they're been in, you know, exposed to uh, a virus that, that could be deadly. So I think that I think that in the context of cell-free systems and where we're headed, it's just a really exciting and transformational time to watch the field mature. Wonderful. Appreciate that sentiment, Mike. And thank you both for an incredible episode. We're very grateful for your time. Thanks once again for joining us. Thanks for tuning in BIOS Community. Sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.